I would like to thank the Israel Policy Forum for having this special meeting. I know of you for a long time, and no doubt you proved to be great friends of Israel and ready to bring the Israeli issues before the American public, the Jewish and the non-Jewish, in the most proper way. Thank you very much. Shalom. That was the late Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin addressing an Israel Policy Forum event which took place just months before he was assassinated in November 1995. Shalom, I'm Evan Gottesman, and you're listening to Israel Policy Pod. Next Wednesday, November 4th, will mark 25 years since Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a Jewish extremist who opposed Rabin's efforts to lead a peace process with the Palestinians. That solemn anniversary has given all of us who care about a just and viable resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict a lot to grapple with. In order to better understand the impact of Rabin's legacy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as well as the consequences of his untimely death 25 years later, we were joined for a special briefing program by Ambassador Itamar Rabinovich, who served as the Israeli ambassador to the United States during Rabin's second tenure as prime minister in the 1990s. For today's podcast, we're bringing you a recording of that briefing. So with that, enjoy the program. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you're a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. efforts to advance a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, consistent with Israel's security. We're pleased to be back with our regular Tuesday webinars, though we will skip next Tuesday, Election Day, when attention will clearly be focused elsewhere, and will resume later on in November. If you've not already done so, please make sure not to miss any program announcements or updates by visiting our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org to become an email subscriber. On our website, I also invite you to check out our policy director, Michael Coplow's weekly column and information on how young professionals can get involved through our IPF ATID program. I also encourage you to tune into our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. This week's episode will feature a roundtable with Israel Policy Forum's in-house experts on the consequences of the American presidential election for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. To keep all of our work going, we rely on your generosity. So to all of our supporters on this program, I want to take this opportunity to say thank you. If you view Israel Policy Forum as a vital resource, want to help to ensure the success of our initiatives in the year ahead, and have not already done so, then I encourage you to make a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now on to today's program. 
the late Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, Zichon Olibracha, had a profound impact on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I had the great privilege of being on the White House lawn to watch Rabin sign the Declaration of Principles with the PLO. And this organization was founded at Rabin's behest to provide a platform for his vision of peace in the American Jewish community and in Washington. Next week will mark 25 years since a fanatical opponent of the peace process assassinated Rabin. As we continue to grapple with the consequences of Rabin's untimely demise and his unfinished work, it is worth examining his legacy today, both in Israel and in the United States. To unpack the significance of this important, sad anniversary, we are fortunate to be joined by someone who knew Rabin extremely well. Ambassador Itamar Rabinovich was Israel's ambassador to the United States from 1993 to 1996. He also served as president of Tel Aviv University and the Israel Institute. Currently, he is professor emeritus of Middle Eastern history at Tel Aviv University, distinguished global professor at New York University, a distinguished fellow at the Brookings Institution, and vice chairman of the Institute for National Security Studies. His most recent book is Yitzhak Rabin, Soldier, Leader, Statesman a biography of the late prime minister. With that, Itamar, thank you for joining us. I'd like to give you the opportunity to offer a few remarks on what Yitzhak Rabin's legacy means in 2020, two and a half decades after his death. Thank you, Susie. Good, good to see you again. Uh, Susie is a, is a good and old friend. Uh, also, hello to Michael Kopra, who uh, was with us at the Israel Institute. I remember the early days of the Israel Policy Forum, as, as you mentioned, during Rabin's uh, tenure, and I'm, I'm delighted that you are continuing in, in this way and, and providing a solid, intelligent uh, support for a peace policy that sometimes is and sometimes is not pursued by the government of, uh, uh, of Israel. Uh, so, 25 years, yeah, incredible. Um, when a leader is assassinated, um, it becomes difficult to separate the life from the death or the life from the assassination. A leader, I mean a meaningful, a real leader, uh, Lincoln, Kennedy, Rabin, um, the life and, and the death become uh, intermingled. Uh, Rabin's assassination was unique in the sense that it was deliberately uh, perpetrated in order to stop a process, to stop the process of reconciliation and peacemaking with the, with the Palestinians. And Lincoln was uh, assassinated for liberating the slaves in the South and waging the, the civil war, but by the time he, uh, uh, he was killed, the mission had been accomplished. We don't quite know uh, to date uh, who uh, stood behind the assassination of Kennedy and what it actually was meant to achieve. Uh, but it, it obviously was meant to achieve something and it, it cut short a wonderful uh, life and a great uh, career. Sometimes uh, a very significant assassination uh, could have a great meaning, but it doesn't elevate the life. The uh, Crown Prince of Austria was killed in Sarajevo on the eve of World War I. It triggered World War I, but what do we know 
what do we know the, about the life of the man who was assassinated? Nothing much. He had not accomplished much. He was the significance of the assassination was that the crown prince of the Austria Habsburg Empire was assassinated by Serbian fanatics and uh, the match that ignited World War I uh, set, uh, set a fire. So in Rabin's case, we both had a meaningful, uh, a very meaningful life and, uh, and a very meaningful death. The life, you look at the life of Isaac Rabin uh, from the early 20s to his assassination in 1995, it's actually the story of Israel. At, at some point, I, I thought about the subtitle for the book called Native Son, because Rabin was the quintessential Sabra, both in some of his characteristics or qualities and in, in the story of, uh, of his life. Um, the Palmach, the War of 1948, the man who built the IDF for the great victory of 67, the great victory of 67, a great uh, tour as ambassador in, in Washington, not such a great tour as Prime Minister first time around, then Minister of Defense, Prime Minister second time around, and this time a, a wonderfully important tenure. Um, so definitely there was a, a life and, and a record, uh, and it can be celebrated. But the assassination had a meaning of, of its own. It, it was meant to, to stop the peace process. In fact, it did not as such stop the peace process. If we look at the year, at the last 25 years, there were subsequent efforts uh, to move significantly on the peace process. Uh, Ehud Barak, uh, Ehud Olmert, even Ariel Sharon, the father of the settlements, took us out of Gaza and would have continued uh, had he not um, been uh, taken ill. In fact, Israel suffered three tragedies because three prime ministers who wanted to move significantly forward. Rabin was assassinated, Sharon was taken ill, and Olmert fell from office due to other reasons. But all three, uh, all three wanted to, to move forward, and all three, by the way, went against the grain of their positions in earlier decades and, and years, and that made them all the, all the greater the ability uh, to go against your own grain is, is the mark of a statesman. So the, uh, the peace process was dealt a blow. Obviously, the fact that Shimon Peres lost the election uh, to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, was a severe blow to the, to the Oslo process, but it was not terminated as such. And by the way, also negotiations with Syria continued. Uh, you, some of our listeners may be surprised to find out that Israel negotiated, or Benjamin Netanyahu negotiated with Syria until the very eve of the outbreak of the civil war in 2011 through American mediation. So uh, that did not come to an end uh, either. So it was not so much the, the blow to the peace process, but the domestic impact of the assassination. The fact that the uh, Prime Minister of Israel would be killed by a Jewish fanatic, this would be preceded by a month of incitement, ugly incitement, that rabbis, rabbis in the settlements would uh, sanction the uh, assassination. You know, I heard the other day, by, by chance, there was a, a story on Israeli television from uh, Borough Park, 
and it was a local journalist who was uh, suspected of leaking news about orthodox behavior during the pandemic, and somebody said to him, you're a moiser. And moiser was what they called, these rabbis called Rabin, the one who informed on, on Jews to, you know, to the others. So I'm, I'm sharing this story with you because what I'd like to drive home is that that ugliness is not gone away. Uh, one of the major errors uh, done by the Israeli government uh, after the assassination was not to, uh, not to punish the agitators and the inciters. Uh, the preference was to try to put everybody under the same tent. That was a mistake because the same mood, some of the same, the very same people uh, continue to live in settlements and other places and to incite against uh, a peace process against peacemaking to threaten with, uh, with violence. So to me, uh, the most important impact of the assassination was not external, but domestic inside, uh, uh, inside Israel. Um, and for that reason, I don't just look at the act of assassination or the day of assassination as standing by itself. I look at the whole six months the incitement that preceded the assassination and what uh, transpired after the assassination culminating with the electoral defeat of Shimon Peres to Benjamin Netanyahu and the formation of the first Netanyahu government uh, in uh, uh, 1996. Now, um, what, what was Robin's legacy? Um, some people say Oslo. Uh, obviously, Oslo was a very important part of, of the legacy. Oslo, by the way, has, um, has been maligned. Oslo is not a positive term in, in today's Israel, and wrongly so. You know, people celebrate the, uh, the deal between Israel and the Emirates and Bahrain and now, now Sudan. And slogan was found, this is the end of... Uh, territories for peace, this is the beginning of peace for peace. Well, it is not. It was a transaction, not peace for peace. And it would not have happened. I cannot drive this point forcefully enough. would not have happened, but for Oslo. The fact that the Emiratis, uh, the Bahrainis, the Sudanese can normalize relations with Israel in the face of Palestinian and other criticism rests on the fact that they can tell the critics, hey, the PLO signed Oslo with Israel. You recognize Israel. Why can't we do that? Uh, so Oslo is the foundation stone of much of, of the positive things that uh, happen, uh, happen today. Yes, of course, Oslo was not completed. There were uh, both sides committed sins against the spirit of Oslo. And, you know, that's a, a different issue. Could have, could have been different. It was not. But... The act of Oslo is there. And when people sometimes, I hear critics on the right saying Oslo was bad in this regard and the departure from Gaza was negative in that regard, I ask them a simple question. Would you like to go back to Nablus? Would you like your son to be a reserve soldier in Gaza? And you know what the answer is. So Oslo, I think, is still, still a very significant positive step, although in an Israel that drifted to the right, it, it became malign. So it's part of the legacy, but I think the important part of the legacy for Rabin in Israel and globally, 
And we have to remember, Rabin was a, very much a dog on the global arena. I was with him a month before the assassination at the UN, the 50th anniversary of, of the UN. Every leader, every prime minister and president who was in New York wanted to meet with Isaac Rabin. He was a Leonine figure on the international scene. And people realized something that is glaringly absent today, leadership. He was a real leader. And what, what makes a leader a leader? First of all, a vision. A leader needs, comes to power, not in order to be in power, to enjoy the trappings of power, but with a vision that he or she wants to implement. And Rabin had a vision. He was given a rare chance of a second term as minister, and he was determined to turn it into something very significant for, for Israel. He had, had an agenda, and he was determined to perform that agenda. Secondly, Rabin was honest, he had integrity, he was straightforward, people trusted him. Rabin was not a charismatic leader, he was not a Moshe Dayan, he was not a Menachem Begin, uh, he was Rabin. Uh, he didn't have charisma, he had authority. People uh, accepted his authority because uh, they respected him, they trusted him, they knew that he commanded uh, all the subject matter that an Israeli prime minister needed to command, that he was Mr. National Security, and they followed him, they, re they respected him. And uh, these qualities are rare. If you look at the current international scene worldwide, and you look for leaders of that stature, there may be one female leader uh, in, in Europe who answers that uh, a description. And therefore, worldwide, I'm, I'm doing quite a few events around the world talking about Rabin because there is an interest in Rabin in countries as far away from one another as Romania and Brazil. People want to hear about, about Rabin because they feel that what they have in, in their own countries doesn't quite come up to that stature of leadership. So I would say the legacy is twofold. It's also, peace process, the determination to bring an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict and normalize Israeli life, to establish peace with security, not as an ideal romantic uh, notion, but something very solid embedded in security, and then a leadership of quality that evokes uh, trust uh, and faith in, uh, in people. Let me end here. Well. That was a lot to unpack, even in your opening remarks, but thank you for setting the table for the rest of our conversation tomorrow. Um, as you know, polls have consistently shown the Israeli public moving to the right politi politically over the past two plus decades. How did the aftermath of Rabin's murder influence this trend? Well, it, uh, it brought the right, the right wing to power. If you look at the Israeli political history from 1977, and Begin first won an election, to the present, and at most times, uh, Israel has been governed by right-wing uh, governments. Uh, and in 1996, Shimon Peres, an architect of Oslo, was defeated unnecessarily, I would like to emphasize, by Benjamin Netanyahu, and a right-wing government came into power. Netanyahu has been a a huge presence on, in, in our life since then. And uh, 
if you look at the media, if you look at the, the voice of the government, they all tend to, to try to uh, influence people to move to the right. Uh, right-wing conservative ideology has been imported from the United States into, uh, into Israel. Um, right-wing uh, donors, uh, conservative Jewish donors in the United States have established influential think tanks in Israel with a deliberate effort to shape Israeli public opinion. The second element is anxiety. Uh, Israeli, uh, most Israelis are anxious. They look at Iran, they look at Turkey. The Middle East is different today than it was 20, 30 years ago. The, these two countries were added to the Middle East. They had not been active in the Middle East before. These two countries between them have almost 200 million people. Both are powerful, quite wealthy, developed, and they're hostile in their own way. I mean, Iran is a Shiite radical country, and Turkey is a Sunni fundamentalist country. Um, if you count the number of missiles that are pointed at Tel Aviv at any given moment, you had Hamas, you had Hezbollah. Um, you know, if you want to think about the fact that 150,000 missiles and rockets in Lebanon are aimed at the at Israel, uh, put there by Iran in, this, uh, in the hands of Hezbollah, people are anxious. There was the Lebanon war, there is the uh, frequent appearances with Hamas in the West Bank, we hear about Iran in, in Syria, we see what Turkey is doing. So people are anxious, and people, when people are anxious, they tend to go to the right and not to, uh, not to the left. So the combination of uh, long-term by right-wing government that and have affected the media and the public opinion and the sense of anxiety have shifted the Israeli public to the right. Uh, we're now witnessing, as you well know, since you're headed to Abu Dhabi shortly, a succession of normalization agreements between Israel and other Arab states under the auspices of Benjamin Netanyahu, who was Rabin's political rival as leader of the opposition back in the early 1990s. During Rabin's second tenure as prime minister, several Arab states upgraded ties with Israel, albeit with, without official normalization, alongside the peace process. How do you think the recent agreements compare to the progress made on this front in the 1990s? Yeah, we had, uh, just to remind, we had here uh, a Moroccan legation, uh, we had a Qatari legation, um, and we could go to countries in the Gulf and you know that I mean that's during uh, during the height of the peace process of the 1990s but once the second intifada uh, broke out all of that uh, uh, vanished I mean the peace pro the peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt survived but all these extras vanished I think this time it may be a bit more solid uh, because um, the reason that the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, not so much the Sudanese, have chosen to normalize with us and do it openly, take relationships that had been under the table sometimes for two decades and put them on the table, have to do with the, the, the fact that for them, the real dangers uh, to the Arab world, to themselves, do not come from Israel. The, the notion in, current in the 50s and 60s that uh, the Zionist enemy was responsible for all the ills of the Arab world, that's an antiquated notion. They see 
two major enemies. They see Iran and they see the jihadis, the, the, the radical uh, Islamists. And they also understand that the Arab world needs to move on and deal with such challenges as the environment to replace the energy that has been the source of their wealth with uh, sustainable uh, uh, energy, uh, to invest in medicine in mean, the time of, uh, of the uh, pandemic. In many of these respects, uh, Israel has much to offer uh, for the, uh, similar reasons to the fact that China, uh, China is very interested in Israel because it wants Israeli technology. So are the Emiratis and, uh, and the Bahrainis. And that was not the case 20, 30 years ago. That is the case now. And therefore, uh, this uh, development uh, may be more long-lasting uh, than the previous phase. One important contribution that Rabin made outside of the context of the peace process was the legitimization of Israeli Arab political participation, running a coalition that depended upon support from Hadash and the Arab Democratic Party. Yet this sort of collaboration has not been seen in Israel since, despite the joint list's recommendation of Benny Gantz as prime minister, invoking Rabin's legacy. Why not? Good question. Uh, should, uh, what we see, actually, on the uh, positive, encouraging side is uh, uh, much greater integration of the Arab minority in Israel. First of all, the minority is quite, it approaches two million. It's, uh, it's now a large, vibrant community. It made huge strides itself. There is Arab high tech. If you walk into an Israeli hospital, if you have to spend time as a patient in Israeli hospital, it's quite likely that some of the doctors and some of the nurses would be Israeli Arabs. If you walk into a pharmacy, the pharmacist who would be servicing you 90% of the time would be an Arab. If you call a call center in the Galilee, and the people who help you tend to be Arab. And so it goes both ways. The Israeli public accepts that. And more and more uh, Arabs in the civil society feel that they are less interested in nationalist issue and more interested in themselves, in having a larger piece of the Israeli pie. So on, on that level, there's been much progress. Uh, where we lack progress is uh, in having a political party um, that would not be a Zionist party, but, but would make it easier for uh, Israeli parties to collaborate with them, to see them as legitimate partners for coalition. You know, you have to do it gradually, not immediately cabinet ministers, maybe just members of the coalition, support from the outside. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. And when we spoke before, about the drift to the right, one of the manifestations of this drift to the right is this, this negative attitude uh, to the minority that is changing, but at a uh, very slow pace. On the subject of Israeli domestic politics, much has been written, particularly in recent years, about the rancor, vitriol, and incitement leading up to Rabin's assassination, and you made reference to this in your opening remarks. Do you see the same trends taking hold in Israel today? I mean, I know you'd commented on this a little bit, but uh, the question is, has Israeli society worked successfully to overcome them? And I, I just want to add uh, to my, this question, um, William Vandenbroek says, and you alluded to this, Itamar, 
the Jewish national extremism that killed Rabin is still alive. What can we do to make sure the Jewish community across the world is rejecting violent Jewish extremism? So it's both in Israel in terms of this, the incitement um, and, and the, the hatred. And it's, as you noted, it's not just confined to Israel. You see it in New York and elsewhere. That, uh, that is correct. What, uh, so it's still very much with us. And unfortunately, its impact has been magnified by the proliferation of the social media. Uh, in the 1990s, we did not have the Facebook and the Twitter and, uh, and the other social media um, that, first of all, lots of people do it on their own. And then there are organized campaigns, or smear campaigns, hate campaigns, bots employed by, uh, by political groups. And there are two ways to deal with it. One is uh, regulation. I think you, you could use that in the States and we could use, use it in Israel. And secondly, leadership. I would expect not just political leaders, but spiritual leaders. I'd like to hear more voices by rabbis in Israel and the United States uh, speaking against uh, hatred, incitement, violence, and so forth. Rabin recently became the subject of political controversy here in the United States when Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez withdrew from an Americans for Peace Now event commemorating his life. What kind of message do you think this sends to Israelis? That actually was a very bad message. She made a big mistake. Um, there are concerns in Israel, uh, you know, I put it this way, uh, I think the, while a, a large proportion of the Jewish community in America is expected to vote for Biden, the support for Trump in Israel uh, is quite high. Uh, he is pro-Israeli, he's done things for Israel. I, also, I think it's overstated, but I can understand why some Israelis think that he's been a great friend. But more than that, people... Uh, people are, are worried by the ascendancy, or at least the influence, of the left wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, uh, uh, Octavio, she's not the only one. We know the, the other Democratic members of uh, Congress who, who she, I mean, she's, she just succumbed to pressure. There are those who, who speak up in an ugly way. Uh, so Israelis are concerned. So some Israelis are concerned, and, and some... Some are trying to persuade them that the democratic return to, uh, to power would bring the left wing uh, of the democratic uh, party to the fore and would be bad for Israel. And what, what she did by withdrawing from, from the event was to uh, play up these fears. And I think she made a big mistake. Itamar, on that point, you're exactly right. In fact, the polls show that uh, where the American Jewish community is on Trump and where Israelis are is the exact opposite. In other words, about, I saw a recent poll that 70% of Israelis support Trump, but if you talk about Israeli Jews, it's 77%. And recent polls on this side of the ocean indicate about 75% of American Jews favor the Democratic Party and, and certainly do not feel that Trump has been so great for Israel on top of everything else. 
Um, I just want to ask you before I move on to a couple more questions and then I'll get to audience questions. Because this is something that concerns me greatly, this divide between our two communities. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how you see it and and whether it's another Trump administration or, another, or a new Biden administration coming in? Do you see a way of bridging this growing divide between our two communities? Yes, I, I don't think it should necessarily depend on who the U.S. president is or who is in the administration. It, should be us. I mean, the Jewish community in America and us in, in Israel should take matters into our hand. Uh, and um, now, uh, one of the, so the happier aspects of the pandemic is, uh, quote-unquote, the discovery of the virtual world. Uh, we can communicate. We can communicate much better than we did in earlier years uh, virtually. I mean, I'm... Uh, every day practically on, on Zoom with uh, some American uh, organization, conference, uh, think tank, so forth. It's, it's really very, very easy and very, very effective. And we should, uh, we should break heads together as to how we use these new technologies in order to, uh, to communicate much better. I know that there are organizations, uh, institutes and groups who make it their mission to, uh, to improve that uh, and, uh, that relationship, but uh, I would say the main challenge is for us, the Israelis. We were very popular with American Jews and others in the heyday of uh, Zionism in Israel. And spoke about one spoke about Israel, one spoke about kibbutz, pioneers, development, values. Much of it is gone now, and uh, Israel is for better or worse, become a more normal country, part of the same global culture. And if it's the same global culture, so why worry about Tel Aviv if you can have it in Brooklyn? So we have to invest in, 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 in trying, again, to be unique and special, attractive, and to be able to offer something to the uh, American Jewish community that would, again, uh, regardless of who is in power, and look up to Israel, or at least look at equal height uh, uh, with Israel and communicate much better than we do. I want to remind our audience, uh, if you have a question, please type it in the Q&A box, and we do have some in the queue. Um, so I'm going to ask one final question of you, Itamar, and then get to some audience questions. We would have an incomplete understanding of Rabin if we only discussed Rabin, the peacemaker. He was also Minister of Defense, Chief of Staff of the IDF, and an officer in many of Israel's early wars with its Arab neighbors. Given his hardline reputation, and particularly his actions during the 1948-49 war, the War of Independence, and the First Intifada on the one hand, and his concessions for peace on the other hand, how is Rabin perceived among Palestinians today? Do many Palestinians see him as a model for other Israeli leaders to emulate, as a person with whom they'd like to negotiate, or is he perceived unfavorably for his military history? No, it's, uh, I think sophisticated Palestinians and Arabs and others understand that one of the aspects of Rabin's greatness was the fact that he evolved. Uh, Rabin in the second term, or Rabin in the 60s and 70s, was not the Rabin 
of his, in, in his 20s and 30s. Um, I remember um, one sat at a dinner table with uh, Al Gore, and Al Gore asked Rabin, what did you want to be originally? And Rabin said, I wanted to be a water engineer. Uh, I was about to go to Davis in California, where the best agricultural school was, in order to study and then come back to Israel and develop my country. But this was World War II, and things went in a different, uh, in a different direction. So he was a soldier when you know security was uh, the uppermost uh, issue. When he finished being uh, chief of staff uh, after 1967, at the height of his military glory, Prime Minister Eshkol asked him, what do you want to do now? And he said, I want to be ambassador in Washington. And Eshkol almost fell off his chair. Rabin was not exactly seen as a natural diplomat, and why, why would he want that? The answer was that Rabin wanted to continue to go into public life, to go into politics. He understood that he, un he needed to know and understand international politics, particularly American politics. And he wanted to spend time in, in Washington and uh, uh, learn the ways of America and uh, the way international politics is conducted. He had a very good mentor, Henry Kissinger, who remained a very close friend of, uh, uh, of his. And uh, he came back... Uh, and went into, into politics. And as I said, the first term was not great because he, he was not a natural politician. Pressing the flesh was not something he uh, enjoyed. Small talk was not something he enjoyed. But he learned over time. He also became, say, a reasonably good politician. But first and foremost, uh, somebody who uh, inspired uh, trust and uh, respect. So, um, Yes, when the, uh, on, on the Intifada specifically, which is what uh, Ms. Cortes, uh, Ocasio Cortes, uh, used as a pretext for getting off the event, uh, Rabin felt when the IDF was challenged, the IDF had to win. Uh, he, he, the Intifada as a challenge to the IDF had to be quashed. But he also learned the lesson that the occupation was not tenable. And therefore, at the very same time, that he ordered the IDF to crush the Intifada, he was already beginning to talk to local leaders in the West Bank and Gaza about autonomy, because he understood that the occupation that was feasible from 1967 to 1987 was not feasible. He was beginning to look for a way out. So I'm going to get to our audience questions. We have several, and I'll try to ask as many as I can in the time we have remaining. First question comes from Jonah Nagy, who's one of our IPF leaders. He says, thank you for giving us some of your time today, Ambassador Rabinovich. Some people have argued that Rabin was not interested in a two-state solution because in his last speech in the Knesset, he said he would not relinquish Israeli control of the Jordan Valley at that time. How would you respond to people who argue that Rabin was not for a two-state solution? Uh, I, uh, I encourage them to go to YouTube and look for the event at the Cochrane Museum after the signing of Oslo II and to listen to Rabin speaking about his vision. And he spoke about, he, believed, he said, I, I'd like a, an independent Palestinian entity. He used these very words. It's something I, I listened to just the other day in order to be certain, and that's what, that's what he said. Spoke about, uh, he, no, he, of course, would not say a Palestinian state because he was about to begin 
a negotiation with Arafat on final status agreement. And you know, in negotiations, you don't begin by giving the other side the bottom line. You have to bargain, particularly in the Middle East bazaar. So we don't know. Uh, you know, he never, he never said very explicitly what his bottom line was, and maybe he should not have done that. But I think that at the end of the day, he realized that there has to be a separate Palestinian state. We have a couple of questions about the incitement that led to Rabin's assassination. So I want to ask, I'm going to combine them. Douglas Morrell asks, do Israelis today blame Netanyahu for helping to create the climate of incitement that led to Rabin's assassination? And Alan Luxemburg asks, you said it was a mistake not to penalize the extremist elements after the assassination. What precisely would you have done and what would you do about Jewish extremists today? Okay, so let's, let's begin with the, the second question. I would have prosecuted the rabbis in the West Bank who incited. I mean, Yigal Amir in, in his uh, uh, interrogation uh, said that he would not have done it had he not been given a sanction by a rabbi. Uh, sanctioned the assassination. The, I mean, rabbis like that should have gone to jail. And people who uh, inside today should go to jail or at least should be fired. I mean, a rabbi is a state position in, in Israel. And they, you know, the, we all think that a rabbi is a, sort of a spiritual function. Let them be spiritual functions, not uh, insiders. Now, this is you know, Israel is a, like the United States, is a country torn down, down the middle. Uh, a base is a base is a base. Uh, it's so a significant part of the Israeli public does not accuse Netanyahu of anything. The other part accuses him of, of a lot. But let, let me describe to you something that uh, I think is very Israeli, and, and those of you who live in the States maybe should be aware of it. Once a year, there is a state commemoration for Rabin on the day of his assassination on the Jewish calendar. It's held at the um, Mount Herzl Cemetery. And the president speaks and the prime minister speaks and so forth and so forth. The prime minister most of the time is Netanyahu. And it creates a very awkward situation. Uh, uh, and sometimes members of Rabin's family, like his sister or his grandson, cannot hold themselves and speak out against Netanyahu it, on that occasion. It becomes very awkward, uh, part of life here in this country. What about the question about do Israelis hold Netanyahu, Israelis in general, not I said, hold no, Netanyahu said, in part accountable for the extremism? No, I said, I mean, there was that rally in Kikar Zion, right? I cannot, yeah, I cannot generalize because when I say Israelis, some Israelis do and some Israelis don't. Uh, as I said, we are divided down the middle. You know, I, we, go, we go now, uh, now there are demonstrations because of the uh, lockdown. There were no large demonstrations in front of the Prime Minister's residence in, in Jerusalem. Um, so we go, the, instead there are more than 100, maybe 200 smaller demonstrations all around the country. There's a couple of them close to our house. We go every Saturday night, about 1,500 people. Cars go by, some people honk the horn 
in support and some people show us the finger. That's the reality. Uh, Marion Bergman asks, how representative of Israeli opinion at large are you, given that the Israeli public has moved so far to the right? Uh, one thing I learned in my life, I should, I should not be a representative, I should be a leader. So I'm, I'm trying to do what I think I should do and maybe try to inspire others to do and not to represent, but to, to do and to lead. We have a question but, from uh, people. Oh, sorry. But, you know, it's, I, I would say uh, I'm not, I don't feel that I'm in a minority position. Uh, remember that for three election campaigns, uh, Netanyahu and the right-wing bloc did not manage to win. They did not form a government. They had to go to guns in order to, to form a government. So the majority of the Israeli public is not there. I think that there is still a majority uh, among the Jews in Israel for a two-state solution. Uh, now, it's difficult to marshal a majority for something hypothetical. I think if there, is a, if there is a formula and it's put on the table, it will have a majority. Michael Coplow, who I think you know fairly well, um, asks the following. Rabin's political success was made possible by his background in the IDF and the respect that Israelis accorded to their military leaders. We still see former generals enter politics as best evidenced today by Kaholavan, but Israelis seem less deferential to the IDF or security establishment expertise on issues of war and peace or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Why do you think that Israelis today dismiss security expertise in a way that they didn't in the past? Okay. As usual, very good question, Michael. Uh, I would say this, um, people sometimes don't realize that politics is a profession. You, you do not move from being a captain of industry or generally in the army directly into politics. And you have to master that profession. There were two generals who were very successful and effective in Israeli politics, Yitzhak Rabin and Ariel Sharon, not right away. For several years, they were not that successful. They ground their teeth, and until they learned the secrets of, of that profession, of how to be a politician or a political leader. So, unfortunately, we've had a plethora of uh, former chiefs of staff and senior officers who went into politics, and as in the case of uh, Blue and White or the Holovan, demonstrated that they were lacking in political understanding. They were outmaneuvered by people who may not be their equal in national security, but teach them a lesson in political maneuvers. So right now, if you listen to the, uh, to the talk that Israelis are conducting, and they always are conducting talks, uh, he said, let's, let's find someone who is not necessarily a former general, uh, some, somebody who uh, who still has name recognition, has prestige, could come from high tech, could come from being a mayor. You know, you look at potential candidates, one of them is a current mayor in, of a large Israeli uh, city. Um, maybe the, uh, you know, Netanyahu himself, by the way, 
did, did not come from a military background. He was a captain in the army, he was not a, a, a senior officer. Olmert did not come from a military background. Um, so it's, I think we may be in a new uh, era or phase in our life where people would look to uh, somebody with different uh, qualifications for being a leader. Dan Kurtzer, who you know well, Dan was former ambassador to both Egypt and Israel, uh, former U.S. ambassador, asks, during your tenure as negotiator or later in 2010, how close were we to a deal with Syria? Was either of these a missed opportunity? Uh, yes. Hi, uh, uh, hi, Dan. Dan and I spent many, many hours together at the height of the peace process, and, and then when he was ambassador and other occasions, and delighted to, uh, to be hearing from him. Um, the book I published at the time about my negotiations with Syria is called The Brink of Peace. Then we came to the brink, and we didn't cross it. I think the, um, the tragedy of this negotiation was, uh, it's a very, of course, a very difficult uh, conflict, and dealt with difficult men. I mean, Hafez al-Assad, the brutal leader of, of Syria, uh, Rabin was not also a, a complex man. They both were interested in making a deal. They were not anxious to make a deal. And the way I used to put it sometimes is, in, in a conflict like this, uh, when you have an ambiguous partner and an ambivalent partner, they find it difficult to make a deal. Also, the United States, that often was the broker or would-be broker of the deal, did not always excel uh, in its role. Most of the time, yes, but at some crucial moments. Uh, in August 1995, when Rabin gave Secretary of State Christopher what we call the deposit, the hypothetical conditional willingness to withdraw from the Golan in return for uh, an Egyptian-like peace, was not used well by Secretary Christopher. At, uh, at the time. Anyway, I think the, 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 closest, um, uh, the closest we came to was towards the end of, uh, 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 the ends of uh, Assad's life, when he told Madeleine Albright in December 99 that he, he wanted to make a deal, because I think he wanted to leave a clean slate to his son, Bashar. Uh, but at that point, physically and politically, he was already exhausted. So it was, uh, it, it never materialized. So we were close a few times, and can point to several other occasions, but there never was the moment in which the Israeli leader wanted very much, Assad wanted very much, and the American broker was at his best. That, that unique moment did not materialize. We have a couple of questions on the two-state solution. Again, I'll ask both of them. Deborah Nussbaum Cohen asks, what do you think it would take to push Israel to come to and abide by a political settlement with the Palestinians, some version of a two-state solution? Skip Cornett asks, are we finished with the two-state solution because of the continuing growth of settlements, more Palestinians calling for one state, and Israelis seemingly indifferent to the idea? and instead preferring the status quo. What does the peace process mean now? Yeah. Let me begin by saying there is no status quo. Uh, we have a, 
the status quo is drifting. We have a drifting annexation. There's no status quo. So my my first priority is not to go directly for a two-state solution, but to stop the drift. Um, now, a two-state solution right now is not available. We have a Netanyahu as prime minister. We have Abu Mazen, who unfortunately did not use, did not take advantage of some very, very important moments. Uh, Olmert uh, could have made a deal with, uh, with Olmert. He did not. Uh, and we have an American president, you know, who is unique in, in his own way. Um, this, this is not the recipe for coming to a two-state solution right now. So my priority would be to, uh, to go for an interim solution. Uh, there are plans for such a solution that would stop the drift, make sure that the option of a two-state solution remains on, uh, on the table. And the moment will come because at some point Israelis will realize that uh, the numbers are such that uh, one needs to make a choice, Jewish or democratic. That moment will come. Bezrat Hashem. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm going to again combine a couple of questions about leadership in Israel today. Uh, Leora Moriel asks, Rabin was a good example of someone who was hard-nosed and aggressive before understanding that war and might are not the answer, that the only way to peaceful coexistence is through negotiation, giving as well as taking. Is there anyone in Israel today who understands this truth and can take a leadership role in Israel? And Roberta Schaffman asks, is there anyone you see in today's political landscape in Israel who can carry on with authority and leadership the Rabin vision? Yeah. Well, of course, there are many in Israel and many in Israeli politics who, who believe in that, but uh, they are not in a, in a position to, to implement such a policy. And also, we should remember that, in a way, it's easier for somebody who, a right-winger, to make the deal. Sharon, Begin, people who, uh, who are right-wingers, they can make concessions more easily than somebody who comes from the left or at least it has to be a centrist. Uh, it's very difficult for somebody who is, can be uh, maligned as a leftist to make the concessions. It would be difficult for somebody who is seen as a leftist to rally the Israeli public. It's easier for somebody who is seen as a security type, centrist, or maybe even slightly uh, right-winger. So, uh, or it has, needs to be a broad... Uh, a broad government. You know, at some point, Netanyahu will leave the government. When Netanyahu leaves the government, the Likud will change. And a broad coalition, a broad coalition that includes, say, the more moderate part of the Likud, could provide the base, the basis uh, of support for a prime minister to make that decision. Bob Goodkind, uh, one of our esteemed board members, says, great listening to you, Itamar. Could you provide your assessment of Trump's policies vis-a-vis -vis Israel, including moving the embassy, withholding economic aid to Palestinians, closing the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, annexing the Golan, well, recognizing annexation yeah. of the Golan. Yeah. And also, what credit do you give to Trump for the UAE-Bahrain normalization? Yeah. Okay. I say it's a very mixed bag. Uh, 
you know, some of it is good. I mean, the strengthening the Israeli position in, in Jerusalem, moving the embassy, uh, recognizing the reality of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, that's, that's all good. Uh, recognizing the Israeli annexation of the Golan <clears throat> is a very peculiar, because in fact, Israel did not annex the Golan. Dan Kelser uh, and I considered writing an op-ed correcting the Secretary of State and Ambassador Friedman, who published a Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed defending the annexation, uh, the recognition of the annexation. Begin, in 1981, did not annex the Golan. He extended Israeli law to, to the Golan. So, you know, that's neither here nor there, because anyway, a, a deal with Syria, when Syria is all torn up by the civil war, is not on the agenda. That doesn't make a big difference. Now, being negative to the Palestinians by uh, expelling the ambassador from Washington or by uh, closing down the consulate uh, in, in Jerusalem, I don't think that made a lot of sense. And obviously, Trump has extended support to the right wing in Israel. And they, he and the right wing in Israel even share some major donors, uh, one major donor. Um, and uh, from my perspective, this is not positive. I don't like to see an American president uh, pulling his weight to support the right wing in Israel. This is part of the shift to the right that we discussed before. So I, I think we are looking at a mixed, mixed bag. Now, with regard to, uh, to the question on the Emirates, I think this is the point at which Trump deserves credit, Trump or his team. But that was an unintended consequence. When he launched the Trump plan, it was not meant to achieve normalization between Israel and the Emirates. It was meant to achieve an Israeli-Palestinian solution. What happened was that when Netanyahu promised the settlers to annex early on part of the West Bank, they provided the Trump administration with a Trump card. He could offer the Emiratis, he said, I'll give you F-35, and a commitment by Israel not to annex if you normalize with Israel. And they use it very well, that uh, Trump card. So yes, he deserves credit for that, even if this is not what he had in mind originally. Avram Sparangan asks, um, he says, former VP Joe Biden has repeatedly told a story of the first time he met Prime Minister Golda Meir, Rabin was in the room, as a young senator. But not much else is known about the Biden-Rabin connection. Is there anything more to tell? No, I, I myself met uh, Joe Biden uh, soon when, after his election to the Senate. He, he came to Israel on a tour. And he came to Tel Aviv University and met with a couple of us to get a briefing on, on the Middle East in, in our research center on, on the Middle East. And we saw a very bright, uh, promising uh, uh, young senator. I must admit that none of us said he will go the distance. But he did. Uh, he's friendly to Israeli record. Uh, it's good. When I was ambassador, I used to see him from time to time, always very pleasant and, and useful. And I wish him lots of good luck. So we're, we're almost at the top of the hour, E. Tomorrow. I just want to close with a couple of comments, but I first want to share this is such a great way to wrap up. This is also from Deborah Nussbaum Cohen. She says that. 
she had the privilege of studying with you at Tel Aviv U in 1984 to 85 in a class about regional threats to Israel. You would perch on the corner of the front desk and just extemporaneously share your insightful expert analysis. This feels like the same class. So Itamar, um, an hour, you, when I was in college, an hour class sometimes seemed very long. This class seemed way too short. I hope you will come back again um, and share your insights with us. It's just been fascinating. And I personally feel like we could have gone a lot longer. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Please ask me back and, and I will ask the best you for back. you. And, yeah, and in, in you. closing, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this possible. So if you have not done so, please consider making a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all once again for joining us today. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your inbox. It comes out every Thursday. And this is our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. As mentioned at the top of the hour, we're taking a brief hiatus from these webinars next Tuesday, November 3rd. When we reconvene later in November, I'm sure we'll have a lot to discuss. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and once more, eat tomorrow. So many thanks. Erev tov, thank you.